Welcome to Fangphology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering the myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture. We're your hosts, Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova. As we're so fond of saying, vampirism can stand as a metaphor for many things, such as its creative flexibility. Its connotations with ideas of infection and disease, however, are especially potent, thanks not only to decades of pop culture explorations, but of the wide-reaching mythology wherein such stories originated. Roger Luckhurst, who edited Oxford World Classics' reprint of Bram Stoker's Dracula, noted that the first mention of the word vampire in the English language is in the 1730s, in newspapers which reported on bodies being dug up with what looked like fresh blood coming from their mouths. Such stories spread far and wide, fueled by local folk tales, a lack of medical care, and a blend of various superstitions. But of course, mythology centred on what today we would call vampires predates the word itself by centuries. One example is a Northumberland legend first recorded in the 12th century wherein an ungodly man was exhumed from his blood-soaked grave and destroyed to end the plague afflicting the people of Alnick Castle. For many centuries, death was a mystery and dying a fearful force devoid of explanation. Some causes of death were deemed to be rooted in the supernatural or some sort of invading demonic force. Many who suffered from wasting diseases like amenia, tuberculosis or cholera, for example, were misdiagnosed as victims of vampiric or supernatural attacks. After all, the symptoms fell in line with many of those superstitions. Weight loss, coughing up blood, immense suffering, and so on. And then there were the epidemics of illness. Whole cities of people were wiped out in the bubonic plague. Outbreaks of cholera and flu decimated entire countries. Venereal diseases became widely feared and terrifyingly common across Europe and beyond. In the 1600s, as the plague claimed millions of lives, the cause was unknown, although we now know that the disease was carried by rats and fleas. The myth of the vampire, as a result, grew all the more foreboding. Where else could claim so many lives in one fell swoop but an inhuman creature of immeasurable evil? The mythos of the vampire as a plague has deep roots not only in history, but folklore and pop culture. In this episode, we will dig into how the legend took form over the centuries, at a time when medicine was primitive and fear of the paranormal seemed all too reasonable. The primary theory for how such infections were spread was a concept known as miasma. Advanced by Hippocrates in the 4th century CE, miasmatic theory was commonplace throughout Europe for hundreds of years. Driven by the notion that diseases of all kinds from cholera to the plague to STDs, were spread by bad air. Scientists didn't abandon this theory until the late 1800s, when germ theory became the norm. Before we get to the meat of this episode, let's debunk one commonly repeated claim. In 1964, one academic named L. Ellis published a paper with the Royal Society of Medicine, wherein they drew a connection between vampire folklore and the condition porphyria. Later papers further popularised the idea, and it seemed like a good fit. Porphyria is a group of liver disorders in which substances called porphyrins build up in the body and impact the skin and nervous system. Some of the symptoms include photosensitivity and blistering of the skin under sunlight, which falls into line with the modern vampire myth. But that's the problem. It's the newer version of vampires and not the original folklore. 
Vampires didn't really become allergic to the sunlight until the early 20th century when Count Orlok died by the rising of the sun in 1922's Nosferatu. The vampires of myth and folk legend were widely considered to be nocturnal but were still able to move about freely in daylight. Even Dracula wasn't fatally allergic to the sun. Daylight merely weakened him. Plus, as was detailed in a 1995 article from the Postgraduate Medical Journal, congenital porphyria is an extremely rare manifestation of an already rare disease, so it was highly unlikely to have been prevalent enough to inspire varying worldwide myths of startling similarity. The actual origins of vampire mythology are vast and far too detailed for one mere podcast episode, but we can pinpoint specific moments of superstition and historical devastation that helped to bolster its power for centuries. The bubonic plague pandemic of the mid-1300s, better known as the Black Death, is still the most fatal pandemic in recorded human history. An estimated 75 to 200 million people across Europe and North Africa lost their lives, and in its aftermath began a new age of socio-political upheaval. The Black Death is seen as the beginning of what is described as the Second Plague Pandemic, a cycle of major infectious outbreaks that spread across Asia and Europe for hundreds of years. And throughout these times, the vampire myth grew in strength. Belief in vampiric forces was rampant in the Middle Ages, mostly because the process of decomposition was not well understood. People saw the fluids being purged from a body through the mouth, such as broken down lung tissue, and assumed it was fresh blood. Sometimes this fluid led the mouth to open and show the teeth in a foreboding manner, something not helped by the receding gums making them look even larger. This fluid often rotted through the cloth shrouds placed over the corpses, making it seem as though the dead were trying to chew their way out of the grave. Such instances were prevented by gravediggers who would shove rocks between the jaws of the dead to prevent them from chewing on the shroud. The remains of a woman accused of being a vampire were discovered in a mass play grave in Lazaretto Nuova, Italy, with a huge stone forced in between her teeth. The vampire plague myth differed depending on the region. While some parts of Europe maintained that it was vampires themselves helping to spread the disease, other areas believed the Black Death itself attracted vampires. Whatever the case, during this period, many bodies were staked or desecrated in some form as a preventative measure against vampires. In Poland, one body was found with its decapitated head placed between their legs, a way to stop a vampire from rising up and infecting others. In Bulgaria, archaeologists found two medieval skeletons with iron rods pierced through their chests, a predecessor to a wooden stake through the heart that would later become a staple in basically all of modern vampire fiction. This was the fate that befell many throughout this period. One infamous example is the life and death of Peter Blagojevich, a Serbian peasant who died in 1725 alongside several other individuals. While the exact cause of death was unknown, it was a sudden death after a very short illness, reportedly about 24 hours. Over eight days, nine people were detailed to have died like Blagojevich. One victim claimed to have been throttled by Blagojevich at night, while his widow said that he had visited her after he had been buried. The villagers suspected that not only was Blagojevich a vampire, but that he was responsible for the illness that had spread through their community. The inhabitants then disinterred his body to examine it for signs of vampirism. 
They claim to have found Blagojevich untouched by decomposition, his hair and fingernails having grown, and flesh blood in his mouth. Convinced that he was the vampire threat, his corpse was staked through the heart and his body burned. The report on this incident was among the first documented testimonies about vampire beliefs in Eastern Europe, and after it was published in a Viennese newspaper, the story spread far and wide across the continent, further adding fuel to the fire of the vampire phobia. Perhaps the most notable pop culture example of vampires as a plague comes in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire. Based on F.W. Murnau's classic silent horror, but with the names updated to those of the original Dracula, Herzog's film plays up the image of the eponymous vampire's arrival on new shores, in this case Wismar, Germany, as a source of devastating infection. The vampire's ship arrives in port, and the murdered crew appear to have been wiped out by a fast-moving disease. The ship is also full to the gunnels with rats, which were the primary spreaders of the bubonic plague. While Lucy, played by Isabel Ajani, is aware of the danger that the vampire poses, she cannot convince the townsfolk that the rats are not the source of the problem. Everyone in town then decides to throw away their lives and wait for their inevitable death of the plague. They toss their property into the streets and feast while surrounded by rats. Herzog intended this to be a parable about how the vampire could be a metaphor for, quote, an ambivalent, masterful force of change, end quote. He brings death with him, not out of malice, but because it's in his nature, much like the uncaring, impersonal, and all-consuming power of an epidemic. In the 1800s, especially during Bram Stoker's time, cholera was a major fear for Victorian England. From 1846 to 1860, it was often categorised as the third major cholera pandemic of the modern times. Over 20,000 people died in Great Britain alone. Immigration was frequently blamed for outbreaks and the disease became associated with foreigners and outsiders, a divisive and xenophobic tactic that, unfortunately, remains popular to this day. Cholera is an infection of the small intestine by a strain of bacteria that leads to severe dehydration and diarrhoea, sunken eyes and skin discoloration. The disease was widely spread by lack of sanitation or access to clean water. It remains a problem to this day in various regions and affects an estimated 35 million people worldwide, causing around 28 to 130,000 deaths a year. This violent wasting disease would strike quickly and leave people dead within hours of symptoms appearing. Stoker himself had experience with cholera, or at least his mother did. Charlotte Thornley was an adolescent living in Sligo, Ireland, when it became the most infected town in the country during a cholera outbreak of the early 1930s. It is thought that more than half of the town's population died, although official figures do not account for the patients who never made their way to hospitals. Charlotte would share with her children and loved ones the tales of the horrific sights she witnessed during the cholera pandemic. She also wrote a detailed and moving account of the events in her memoir, Experiences of Cholera in Ireland. One, I vividly remember, a poor traveller was taken ill on the roadside, some miles from the town. And how did those Samaritans tend him? They dug a pit, and with long poles pushed him living into it and covered him up alive. But God's hand is not to be thus stayed and severely like Sodom did our city pay for such crimes. Dwayne Dong of Xavier University of Louisiana suggests that Dracula's inability to cross running water is, quote, because of its purity and cleanliness, therefore both Dracula and cholera can only cross and infect others via stagnant water. 
he also theorised, just as cholera was spread worldwide by merchant ships, Dracula, the disease carrier, is transported by ships across the sea to England, where he begins to infect his foreign victims in the same manner. Interestingly, garlic was used as a remedy for various ailments, including cholera, dysentery, influenza, and more at this time. The supposed healing qualities of garlic have been utilised for centuries across the planet. A mass grave uncovered by archaeologists in Poland, with around 300 bodies, revealed six graves wherein bodies were buried with sickles and or rocks placed over their necks. It was believed that, if the vampire tried to rise from the grave, they would have trouble getting up thanks to the added weight. That or the sickle would decapitate them. Scientific study revealed that these vampires would actually cholera victims. Because cholera strikes quickly and devastates the body in such a short period of time, it's not hard to see why people may have thought that illness was supernatural in some way, such was its devastating effects. As medical historian Ian Morley put it, when coupled with its ability to defy conventional medicine, it generated unparalleled fear. The disease, a frightening silent spectacle, was unlike anything known before it. With its air of mystery, defiance, and with such minimal explanation as to its cause, cholera recalled the memory of the Middle Ages plagues. It shocked society like no other illness had done in recent times and generated everything from general unease to riots. In light of the rise of statistical analysis and contemporary ways of thinking about the social nature of disease, cholera became a compelling propagandist for urban betterment and warranted both political stability and social justice. In the 18th and 19th century, another epidemic had dominated Western Europe, tuberculosis. The disease, which impacts the lungs and can cause a wide range of symptoms, including bloody coughing, night sweats and fever, has existed among humans for literally tens of thousands of years. Scientists discovered evidence of tuberculosis infection in human remains from the Neolithic era. For our purposes, however, we're going to focus on the 17 and 1800s, when TB spread and mortality rate decimated large parts of Europe. In the 19th century, TB killed about a quarter of the adult population of the continent. The disease was called the robber of youth because of its high death rate among young people. Tuberculosis also became seen as a romantic disease by some. British poet, vampire inspiration, and all-round spooky bastard Lord Byron once wrote, I should like to die from consumption. Novels like Les Miserables and operas like Puccini's La Boheme furthered the image of tuberculosis as a tragic yet beautiful death for young bohemian artists beaten down by life. The image of an alluring young individual oh so prettily wasting away fits in almost too well with the vampire myth. An outbreak of tuberculosis in New England in the 19th century even led to a vampire panic. Many bodies were exhumed and internal organs ritually burned to stop the vampire from attacking the local population and to prevent the spread of the disease. One of several notable incidents included the exhumation of Mercy Brown, a 19-year-old woman who, along with most of her family, had succumbed to the disease. Mercy's father, George, was persuaded to give permission to dig up the bodies of his family. Mercy's body apparently showed no signs of decomposition, and there was reportedly fresh blood found in her heart. She was deemed to be the vampire who preyed upon the other members of the Brown family, including her still-living brother Edwin. To prevent further outbreak, 
her heart and liver were burned, and the ashes were mixed with water to create a tonic, which was given to the sick Edwin to drink. Edwin died two months later. As much as cholera and tuberculosis were a problem during Stoker's time, perhaps no disease struck as much fear into the hearts of men as the prevalence of syphilis. Most commonly spread through sexual activity, syphilis was one of the deadliest STDs of its kind, as well as one of the most devastating. Symptoms included ulcers, sores, tooth loss, and in its most severe instances, devastation of the central nervous system, leading to dementia, severe personality changes, delusions, seizures, and psychosis. Congenital syphilis, the kind transmitted in utero, often results in facial and tooth deformities. Some sufferers lost their noses entirely. One in five Londoners had syphilis by the age of 35 in the late 18th century, according to some historians. Early treatment of syphilis was often as barbaric as the disease itself. One long-standing remedy was mercury, which would be rubbed onto wounds or directly administered through the mouth. Some patients of tertiary syphilis were even infected with malaria as a way to combat the high fevers the disease caused. Syphilis was considered something of a bohemian disease due to the large numbers of artists who either had it, died from it, or were suspected to have been infected with it. This included people like Leo Tolstoy, Charles Baudelaire, and Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. Syphilis was also viewed in nationalistic terms and demonised as such, depending on one's location. The English and Germans called it the French disease. The French called it the Neapolitan disease. The Dutch called it the Spanish pox. To the Turks it was known as the Christian disease. The threat of the vampire, much like that of the threat of syphilis, was always coming from, quote, somewhere else. The problem was that of other people, despite how terrifyingly prevalent it became. Controversially, Stoker's nephew, Daniel Farson, published a biography in 1975 that claimed his great-uncle had died of tertiary syphilis. This has been questioned by many, and there remains no tangible evidence that Stoker ever received a diagnosis or treatment for syphilis. Still, there's a reason that the rumour prevails. It feels like a fitting conclusion to the narrative of the great vampire writer who wrote so effectively about the fear of infection from an all-consuming force. Vampires' metaphor for sexually transmitted diseases is a common occurrence in fiction. One specific adaptation of Dracula, however, played around with that rumour of Stoker's syphilis to fully tie together vampirism and the disease. In 2006, the BBC released a new take on Dracula, a loose reimagining of the book that directly tackled the central metaphor of vampirism as an STD. Arthur Holmward is introduced as being diagnosed with syphilis, which he contracted at birth thanks to his father, but the symptoms have only begun to reveal themselves in adulthood. Aware that the disease will not only kill him, but hurt his fiancée Lucy Westenra, he contacts an occult group called the Brotherhood, which claims that they know someone who can cure him. All he has to do is acquire some properties for a Count Dracula in Transylvania, a job he offers to solicitor Jonathan Harker, the fiancé of Lucy's best friend Mina. Harker is, of course, murdered by Dracula, then makes his way to England and he quickly begins seducing Lucy and planning British domination. In this Dracula, vampirism is simultaneously the cure and the disease. His blood infects others with a violent fate and typically in a very sexually driven manner. But it still seems like the preferable fate for Lucy when the other option is dying via syphilis, thanks to her loving husband. Vampirism is cruel and ends in a bloody death for Lucy, but frankly it seems a hell of a lot better than the grotesque bodily and mental degradation that befell Arthur's father. Syphilis is not the everyday freer it once was, of what does seem to be making a terrifying comeback according to some scientists, such as a current epidemic in New Zealand. While the specifics have changed, the image of a sexually transmitted disease and infectious plague as a paranormal force, however, remains a powerful creative tool. 
In the 1980s, as the AIDS epidemic claimed millions of lives and stigmatised LGBTQ plus people worldwide, many storytellers turned back to the vampire to explore its impact on society. That topic is so vast and complex that it demands the respect and focus of a full episode rather than a single paragraph, so stay tuned for that. In modern times, the disease metaphor is now more the domain of zombie fiction rather than vampires. The current condition of pop culture vampirism is more focused on the aspirational elements of immortality. Whether it's a love that never dies, youth that never fades, or just plain old superpowers, the modern vampire has primarily shied away from the grotesque and clinical. It's a cure rather than a disease. That said, there are some notable exceptions. In The Coldest Girl in Cold Town, both the short story and 2013 young adult novel by Holly Black, vampirism is very much treated as a disease, with infected individuals confined to quarantine zones called cold towns. Those newly bitten undergo an 88-day incubation period for the condition, where if at any time they succumb to the desire for blood, the transformation is complete and no cure is possible. While the young are enamoured with the lifestyle inside the cold towns, the adults responded with fear and ineptitude, and violence which exacerbated the problem. Her teacher had told them about the famous raid in Corpus Christi, when Texas tried to close its cold town and drove tanks into it during the day. Every human inside who might have been infected got shot. Even the mayor's daughter was killed. A lot of sleeping vampires were killed too, rooted out of their hiding places and beheaded or exposed to sunlight. When night fell, the remaining vampires were able to kill the guards at the gate and flee, leaving dozens and dozens of drained and infected people in their wake. Mass quarantine zones as a form of disease containment is a practice that's been around for millennia. The American government's Center for Disease Control website offers a modern historical timeline dating back to 14th century Italy, wherein ships arriving in Venice from infected ports were required to sit at anchor for 40 days before landing. Holly Black's idea of specific settlements of quarantine harkens back to the now somewhat outdated practice of quarantine hospitals and locations. Mary Mellon, perhaps most infamously known as Typhoid Mary, spent over 23 years living in isolation after being singled out as a carrier of typhoid fever. The island of Kamau Taurua in New Zealand served as the quarantine station from 1863 to 1924 for patients and visitors with various infectious diseases. It is thought that around 9,000 people were quarantined there over the course of seven years, with a reported 70 or so deaths. Quarantine has become commonplace again over the past year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, although in a different fashion to previous decades. While international arrivals to New Zealand, for example, are sent to fancy hotels instead of small islands, they are still required to spend 14 days in managed isolation and be subjected to regular tests. Positive tests spend an extended stay at a specific facility. While a pandemic is our current present, for those in the world of the 2009 Australian-American film Daybreakers, it is the past. There, a plague started by an infected bat that has since converted most of the human population into vampires. Aside from a few that live in hiding, most humans exist only in mass farming machines to provide a worldwide vampire population with blood. But blood consumption seems to be a treatment for the darker side of the disease. Without it, vampires deteriorate physically and mentally into bat-like creatures called subsiders. Once advanced to that point, there is no cure. The disease here is setting. The metaphor is capitalism and overconsumption. 
Like healthcare in some countries, blood is accessible only to the wealthy, resulting in devastation in the lower classes. While medicine has made stratospheric advancements over the centuries, mythology and superstition remain potent forces. In Romania in 2003, in the village of Marotino de Sus, an ordinary 76-year-old Romanian man called Petra Toma died. His niece then claimed that her uncle was still visiting her at night, and that he was bringing illness with him. The family soon formed a vampire hunting group to take care of the problem. They dug up Thomas' corpse, put stakes through his body and sprinkled it with garlic, took out his heart, burned it, then drank the ashes with water. The group was later arrested and charged with illegally exhuming Thomas' body. They were sentenced to six months in jail, but did not serve it. We can't end this topic without talking about our current predicament. As of the writing of this episode, the COVID-19 pandemic has claimed more than 3 million lives worldwide, and more than 140 million confirmed cases across every country on the planet. Our way of life has irrevocably changed, and it may take us years to fully understand the long-term traumas and ramifications of living through this deadly outbreak. From a cultural standpoint, we have already seen how artists and audience alike have responded to COVID-19 in real time. A hell of a lot of TV shows started using Zoom regularly. Soap operas and sports stadiums alike were populated by mannequins and cardboard cutouts. Many series integrated real-time events into their narratives. There are even a bunch of self-published coronavirus-themed romance novels of questionable taste, ranging from lockdown relationships to people literally fucking the virus. As you said before, pop culture and vampirism comes and goes in cycles. The notion of the vampire as a ravenous, infectious force that remakes the world in its image is a popular metaphor. Will we see a slew of COVID-inspired vampire stories in the coming years? It feels inevitable on some level. Will it all be too soon? Most likely. Art is how we process our concerns, and vampires are an ideal metaphor for a universal fear like a pandemic. Some things never change, and some things always come back. Thank you for listening to Fangthology. This episode was written and performed by Kaylee Donaldson and Catherine Slavova, with editing by Catherine Slavova. Please like, share, and review us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. For more information and links to our research, please check out our website, fangthology.com. For bite-sized trivia and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, also by the name of Fangthology. Lately, we've been posting about upcoming releases of vampire fiction and non-fiction, and we'd love to continue the conversations with our listeners over there. If you want to get in touch with us by email, it's simply fangthology at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next month for another episode of Fangthology. Fangthology.